Mr. Epstein, the Beatles have tended to overshadow all the other artists you have uh, working for you or for whom you work. What sort of size of empire have you got now? Um, we have seven acts. I call them acts because five of those are groups and two of them are soloists. That's um, Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas, which is a separate entity, his backing group. Jerry and the Pacemakers, Tommy Quickly, The Foremost, Cilla Black, and Sounds Incorporated. And what about the administrative staff to support all this? What well, it varies slightly, because um, we've just moved into London, mm -hmm. and we're gathering new staff, but um, it's approximately 25. And what sort of size of empire is it in terms of money? One's read some staggering figures that the Beatles have earned for their recording company mm. last year. What sort of turnover does this empire produce? I couldn't give you an answer to that. I really don't know. Because don't forget that the company has only... the companies which can uh, manage these artists, to which they are contracted, has only been in operation for June... since June 1962. Mm-hmm. Welcome this week's one there was Fab. I'm Ed Chan. And I'm Martin Quibell. Well, not too much news. We still haven't heard what's going on with Now and Then and the revised, remastered Red and Blue albums. Do we know what is going to be extra on there? We know nothing at this point in time. Even the rumor mill seems to have dried up and all that anyone's kind of saying is, uh, yeah, it's still coming this year. They're batting down the hatches and they don't want anybody finding anything out. Some people are saying that maybe they didn't want to conflict with the stones and as we know paul plays on one song on that record and we've heard that he's actually played on another song and that they're going to put out another record sometime in the next couple of years. Otherwise, well, by the time you're getting this, Ringo's back out on the road again. He starts out September the 17th at the Toyota Arena in Ontario, Canada. Wow. Maybe he'll come over to the UK at some point again. <sighs> he should. I mean, he, he, he has great-grandchildren there, so... Well, it could be like a working holiday then, you know, one or two gigs a week and visit the fam. 
Yeah, I think it may just be a matter of getting the band there with him. But he's got a hell of a band with him at the moment. Cheer loudly for Frankenstein. I, I had a little, and by little, I mean like a five-minute conversation with Greg Bissonette about Frankenstein. He got a kick out of the fact that I told him that that was one of the highlights of the show for me, that it was one of my favorite bits was when he and Edgar Winter were trading off drum licks with each other. That's great. I enjoyed that when we saw that footage of that other gig concert that we watched as well. When was that? You know, we got so many hosts here on this show now. That's true. Yeah, we did. <laughs> we did a whole uh, Ringo concert, didn't we? That we talked about. Yeah, that's right. We did one of the Sheila E shows. We did. Yep. And that was you and I. But we, I know, we also talked about maybe just after I got back from San Francisco, we talked about this version of the All Star Band. Yep. I think that's when we had the Gab Four together. Ah, may well have been. The, the first time we had all of us together. And as you know, in the last couple of weeks, well, we were all together again. We, we had a reunion. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's a reunion, but it was something. Yeah. Speaking of our other partners, the news in our lives, Lonnie and I are going to Mexico City. Ooh, nice. <laughs> I managed to score, not next to each other, but on the same row, a couple of tickets for the second Mexico City date. So will you be sitting in the backseat of a car? Uh, well, <laughs> I won't be. B- backseat of an airplane, maybe. Maybe. Nice. We could conceivably drive there, but I mean, it's probably just going to be a day in, day out. It's a Thursday evening show. Sounds like a plan. The next time Lonnie's on, which may be next week, uh, we'll talk more about it. But any chance to see Paul is great. I'm looking forward to, in the next couple of weeks, seeing whether he's going to make any changes. I don't think so, but I'd like for that to happen. So, yeah, Paul is out. He starts in Australia on the 18th of October and goes through the 4th of November. Then on the 14th of November, he starts in Mexico City, does two dates in Mexico City, then goes on to Brazil all the way through the 16th of December. If he doesn't do back in Brazil when he's in Brazil, I don't know what's wrong. I would flip if he did backseat of my car in Mexico City. I would love him to do that song live. Absolutely. And I think he could still do it. If he, if he toned down those high notes, let Abe do some of the high bits, I think he could still do it. I think that's a good idea. Use Abe. Yeah, absolutely. It's reasonably popular these days. I mean, you know, Get Back raised the profile of both Ram and that song. Yep. That song first came about during the the sessions that went to become Let It Be and Get Back. We had almost the whole first two verses of it there. Absolutely. The melody was kind of still in development, but the lyrics, he was two verses in at that point. Yeah. That very nearly could have been, if John had been willing to have helped out, that could have been on an album by the Beatles. We don't know. There may still be something somewhere. Here's hoping. That would be fun if they found some John Lennon tape somewhere, and it's not now and then at all. Wow. I don't think it's going to happen, but that would be a surprise. Although, you know, what I would like is... Assuming he does the uh, the duet, the the John Lennon duet on I've Got a Feeling, introduce it with the backseat of my car. 
Mind-blowing, that would be. <laughs> Put the two of them together, but I'm betting he's going to maybe do one or two different songs. Assuming now and then is out there at that time, I could see him pulling that into the set. It's, it's possible. It is. Yeah. Then you, you could just play John's vocal with the band and with him singing. Yep. Well, there you go. You, you've already got it. Uh, Paul needs to listen to this show. Come on, Paul. <laughs> One other thing before we get into our main topic. I have just started getting into Abbey Road, the inside story of the world's most famous recording studio by David Hepworth. It's not the best written book, but the hmm. detail is very nice. Okay. I've read some Hepworth before, and he's usually quite good what i've read of his before now the research is top notch the writing is so so he he likes to go off on lists yeah you'll get into the middle of a chapter and then he he just starts and then there was this and then there was this other thing and then there was this third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh thing so you, you get two sentences which are nothing but a long list right in a lot of ways it's what I wish Mary had done with If These Walls Could Sing. I'd like to see somebody write a book about Montserrat Recording Studio of George's at some point. The whole air thing. Yep. Ken Womack just kind of got slashed at the knees by not being allowed to do more on that. Right, yes. He really wanted to do a three-volume George Martin bio, and if you'd had a whole volume, he would have had the space... And it would have been leisurely enough that he could tell both the London and the Montserrat Air Studios story in the detail they deserve. But nope, you have to compress everything from 1966 to the end of his life into a single volume, even though it's a big volume that was kind of a little disappointing. And Ken agrees. Yep. Anyway, pick up that book. It's It has all of the goods on the Abbey Road studio from the very beginning, I'm actually not even to the Beatles bit yet. I'm not quite a third of the way through. So, Do you think it would be a good book to go alongside the documentary that Mary did? It's a good companion. I mean, Mary's is much more personality-driven. Okay. You get a lot more about the studios. And what I find interesting to this point is without talking about the Beatles, he's talking about how the studio became what it was for the Beatles. You know, the business of EMI was into electronics when that wasn't something that other studios were doing. Yep, hence the lab coats. Yeah, exactly. And, and I've just kind of gotten through a fairly lengthy chapter where he's talking about Bing Crosby and how EMI's advances with the electronic microphone really allowed the crooners and the music that we associate with the 30s. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, because yeah, they had to make the microphones more sensitive, didn't they, and technology. And the- what they called microphones in the analog days were really just a horn, basically. So you, the sound you got was very iffy. And eventually you'd find them having experiments like trying to make a microphone from a speaker and things like that. That's the Beatles for you. Yep. Our main topic for the day, what we have kind of talked about a bunch over on the toppermost side, is the Brian Epstein Axe, the NEM stable. We, you know, we really don't quite get enough information or detail about Brian. You hear a couple of acts, you hear the big acts, but he had a lot of acts. He really did. I mean, you know, we, we went down that rabbit hole and the rabbit hole, it's like it never stopped. I mean, in many ways, he really had too many acts. Yeah, probably. We've got several stories, including stories from 
Mike McGear and the scaffold, Paul's brother. Well, Brian just didn't have any time for us. Do you think that might have been a thing then? Because, you know, the Beatles were the big band and the other bands went elsewhere because they weren't getting the same sort of attention that the Fabs were getting. The Beatles were an act which required all the attention of Brian Epstein. I mean, it's fortunate that he really had these other acts that held their own careers so well that he could devote a bit less time, but still give them what they needed. You know, Scylla and Jerry and Billy Jay and, you know, the ones we know about, but there's dozens, literally dozens more. I mean, this is pure conjecture here, but do you think that there was a possibility that Brian could have doled out some duties to people who were underlings to Brian and that might have made the work a bit better. Well, I mean, is that what he was kind of thinking when he was bringing on Robert Stickwood? Maybe. That's something I've never really understood, the whole business of why was Brian bringing on Stigwood? Brian didn't need him. It was to Stigwood's advantage. It it was only a disadvantage to Brian, especially since the Beatles wanted nothing to do with Stigwood. Yeah, it is possible. Egos, they might have thought, why are you doing this? Why aren't you giving all of yourself to us because we're the band? You look at the relationship of Elvis and Colonel Tom. Once the Colonel started with Elvis... That's all there was now, of course. The colonel didn't have Brian's taste or Brian's skill at presenting his acts to the world. You would find that there's certain managers, well-known ones, who only had like a stable of, say, three or four acts that they managed at the most and left it at that. It's almost as if, because of the amount of bands that Brian's got, like you said, it's almost like he's spreading himself too thin and... Yeah, so he would be giving so much time to these people that these other people... It's like a parent, you know, preferring one child over another, for instance. Being in Liverpool at that point in time, when you had all of these good acts, and, you know, once you see the Beatles getting that taste of success, they all wanted to come on and jump on that train. So he didn't have to do anything to get other acts to come in and be the stable the stable evolved because there's brian there's the beatles he made the beatles successful and it's like well as you say they all have egos well we can do what the beatles can do yeah the big three being the obvious example oh yes there's a story there isn't (laughs) indeed so all right the story or at least this story really starts right around november of 1961 brian had to have at least seen the Mercy Beat. He was writing a column for it. He had to have known, at least to some extent, who the Beatles were when Raymond Jones came into the store and requested the record. We were asked, or I was asked, by a young boy for a record by the Beatles. And it always had been our policy in records to look after whatever request was made. And I followed up this inquiry. I didn't know anything about it. Um, and it was only after a week or two that he told me that they were, in fact, a Liverpool group. I, I assumed, for some reason, that they were from Germany. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he told me that they were a Liverpool group and that they'd just, in fact, returned from Germany and that they were playing in a club called The Cavern, uh, about 100 yards away from my office, and I arranged to go down there and I saw them one midday session. This is pretty much of an eye-opener, to go down into this darkened, yeah. dank, smoky cellar in the middle of the day, uh, and to see crowds and crowds of kids watching these four um, young men on stage. 
But sometimes a good story is more interesting than the facts, should we say? I think he may have not been completely cognizant of what was going on, but I think he at least knew, oh, there's these four guys who come into the store, they wear the leathers, they play my records in the listening booth for hours at a time. I think he had an eye on them. Yeah. And then it's only when he got the quest for the, for a record, it's like, oh, those guys have a record? Yeah. I do believe that what really got his attention was when he went down to the cavern, climbed down those steps, and even if he had some idea who the Beatles were, it's like, oh, wow, this is something really, really different. He gets to know them as a package, essentially, where he's got like what they're like as musicians what they perform. There were then some originals in the set as well, so he's got an idea of what they can do writing-wise, but he's also getting an idea of what they are like as people, so he can see what they are like connecting with the audience and get a gist of what they're like and go, well, yeah, they actually have that entertainment package to them where they have that natural humour and that character that they all have. Well, I think that is ultimately the biggest thing about Brian and his talent. His talent was picking good songs and knowing how to present them to the world. Yeah, definitely. It kind of makes me wonder how Brian let George Martin get away with giving them How Do You Do It? We've discussed that many times, how that was really not a song for the Beatles. While they did their best to arrange it in a fashion to make it good or make it something that they could play it was really never going to work i mean they're, they're really fortunate in that mitch murray said nope don't like that at the same time brian is working with george martin who is working on behalf of emi parlophone i mean it was well known that at that point in time you went to outside sources a lot of the time for a big hit for a band or an artist. Yeah, that's what an A&R man did. It might have been suggested to George, look, we've got this band. Can you find them a hit that is not written by them that can get them out there because we've signed this band, essentially? So there might have been something from above as well. Uh, that's true, and it also may have been that, well, Brian was also new to the business, and even if he was thinking to himself this is never going to fly. He just didn't have the gumption. Well, he wasn't John Lennon. He wasn't going to go up and say, no, we're not going to do this. We want to try one of our own. Eventually, you know, there would be a really good relationship between George Martin and Brian Epstein, where they would be used to each other and trusted each other more and understood each other more. Whereas at this point, I think, like you said, you know, Brian is relatively new to the recording industry, you know, and the record companies. Whereas he was probably relying on George and thinking, well, George is probably right because he's been in the industry for this long. The first act after the Beatles was probably Jerry and the Pacemakers. Can I talk to you about Brian Epstein? Oh, certainly, yes. What, what's he mean to you as Brian. manager? Oh, the money? <laughs> no, seriously, he's uh, done a lot for us, you know. He tells uh, all kinds what to do and... Yeah, made us wear suits and everything. Yeah, looked bad and everything. But even in our private lives, he plays a hell of a lot. Yeah, does lots of things. Well, what for other us. things apart from telling you what suits to wear and how to cut your hair, that kind of thing? Well, but sorts of little things. You know, any if you have any money troubles or anything, or anything to do with money, you can always go to Brian and ask him what to do or what not to do with, and he'll always tell you. You know, as a pal.
the big three like to say they were the second act that Brian signed, but uh, that doesn't seem likely. Billy J also says that he was the second act signed by Brian. It was almost certainly Jerry. I would say so. And Jerry would be the recipient of Lennon McCartney original, one which he and the pacemakers didn't release. That was Hello Little Girl on July the 17th, 1963. You know, it's a song the Beatles had had around since their DECA audition. Do we know why the pacemakers didn't want it released? Nobody was really that happy with their version of it. Hello, little girl. It's not the first time it's happened to me. It's been a long, lonely time. And it's so funny, so funny to see. But I'm about to lose my, 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 mind. So I hope there'll come a day when you'll say, Their version of it is better than the foremost version of it. Is it possible that it was more likely to be a hit single for the foremost because by that point, uh, Lennon and McCartney were a known entity as songwriters from the Beatles' work, so there was that to fall back on. And I think they promoted it at, the, at that point of saying, oh, this is um, you know the foremost with a song written by Lennon and McCartney... Hello, little girl. You know, we go back to uh, the Mersey Sound where you have Paul talking about... We've thought about it, and probably the thing that John and I will do uh, will be write songs as we have been doing as a sort of sideline now. We'll probably develop that a bit more, we hope. Who knows, at 40 we may not know how to write songs anymore. There's nice film footage of that, actually, isn't there? Yeah, that's what I say, in in the Mersey Sound, parodied ruthlessly in the Ruddles. What, what Ron and I are going to do, I think... <laughs> Poor Eric. Yes. Jerry, to a certain extent, never really wanted to be an international hit artist. I mean, he would get some fame in the States, but that wasn't really what he was going after. I don't know much about their recordings, Jerry, and the pacemakers. Did they end up actually recording anything that John or Paul wrote? I mean, I know eventually in the 1980s... There's an unfortunate uh, KTEL album from Jerry. Yes. I don't think the pacemakers ever actually recorded anything that John or Paul wrote. I think you may be right, but the pacemakers were slightly twee almost. I mean, they were good, but in the States, I think they rode the Beatles' coattails. Yeah, I think they've got sort of like that sound that is the Mersey sound to them, but there's almost a comfortability of of what came before almost with with the pacemakers there's that i don't want to say lounge act but you know it's got that sort of feel to it where it's almost like a classic pop act but with that sound i kind of have to wonder did they have a little bit more of an edge you know at the cavern and playing in hamburg i just can't imagine their 63 64 act going over at the star club I wondered if they were toned down, in a sense, when they signed and what they were recording. Another commonality we see to a lot of these acts is that they claim that Brian tried to tone them down. I almost just have to wonder whether that is actually the case or not. John Lennon was never going to be toned down. And really, Paul would 
outwardly be toned down, but in his heart, he would never listen to anyone. And as we know, the thing which bugs Paul the absolute most in the whole world is being told what to do. Even to this day. Brian put his bands in suits. He presented them in a very specific way, but I don't think he ever actually interfered in the music. Well, he got most of the bands to wear the suits. <laughs> well, that, that brings us to our next act, the big three. The big three, yes. So they, they, may have been, they may have been the second act that signed with Brian. They may have been the third, but they were certainly amongst the first three that Brian signed. But not for long. Well, I, you know, I guess they were with him for a year, roughly. So the Beatles got signed. The Beatles got their record deal. And Johnny Hutch went to Brian and asked Brian to sign them. And Brian did. Wow. I wish there was somebody like Brian around now. <laughs> the market would certainly be a very different place. Yes. Wouldn't it just? Apparently what they were looking for was they were just looking for a residency in Hamburg. All right. They weren't looking for Brian to get them a record deal as well then. Well, they certainly wanted a record deal and they wanted more, but Johnny Hutch went to Brian initially just to kind of say, look, can you get us booked into one of these clubs that you get the Beatles booked into in Hamburg? Right, okay, which I'm guessing he did. Brian put on one of many Liverpool showcases that he would do through 62 and 63. He put them on a shared bill with the Beatles at Southport, and he was impressed enough that he did actually get them that gig. Well done, Brian. The rest of the band wasn't real happy with that. Oh, okay. Apparently they followed the Roy Storm in the hurricane mode, and their stage suits were either these yellow or pink suits. Oh, nice. You're going to stand out wearing those, aren't you? (laughs) Which, guess what? Brian was not all that happy with. Well, no. He wouldn't be, would he? What follows is a story that we heard before from the Beatles. He told them that they couldn't smoke on stage and insisted that they introduce some softer numbers into their act. You see, that I just don't see Brian actually doing. He seemed to be away from the music side. I'm, or is it just that John Lennon told him, look, leave the music to us. You go do your numbers. That's possible because, well, yeah. We know what John's like at telling people what he thinks. For their next stint in Hamburg, they would only be booked as a four-piece. Okay. The big three, a four-piece. Okay. That's why you get a horn player. The horn players don't count. It's always the horn player. (laughs) Again, is that Brian that's doing this, or is this the club owner who said, after the Beatles, we want you to provide us with four-piece bands? Or maybe four or more piece bands. Four or more. We know Roy Storm was five most of the time. Yep, so four and more, I would have thought. That was exactly what they said. After all, we were supposed to be the big three, not the big four. Right. And we also have told the story about when Brian did get them a recording contract, they recorded a version of some other guy that they weren't all that happy with, and it still came out. 
Yeah, didn't they say that it was only a, a, a rough demo version that they'd recorded? That is what they say. Decca just wasn't going to put any more money into this recording session. It's not the best. I mean, as we mentioned, Elvis Costello prefers it to the Beatles version of some other guy. Elvis, he can pick what he likes, and I prefer the Beatles version from the cabin. It's a slightly bluesier... It is more in line with the original, but I guess the big three was thinking that they were this big, mean rock and roll band, and this was a little bit too light for their tastes. Yes. But it's not a bad version of some other guy, no matter what you think of it. Absolutely. Nobody tops the Beatles, and while it was not a big hit, it was certainly a top 20 hit. Yep, it was. Another interesting bit is that Johnny Hutch was originally offered the role to replace Pete Best in The Beatles, or so he says. I think there were probably some discussion. He also says that he's the one who told them to go get Ringo. Okay. He was never going to join The Beatles. Whether they even thought to ask him, John, Paul, and George knew him enough at that point that I don't think they would have approached him. I kind of think it's more along the lines of Brian was just feeling out the other drummers in Liverpool just in case Ringo said no. Obviously, uh, Johnny Hutch allegedly wasn't that interested because uh, he said something along the lines of, I wouldn't join the Beatles if you gave me a gold clock. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, uh, well, what does that mean? Yeah. They had their history together. and We know they weren't exactly friendly. Although, as we talked about last week... Paul thought enough of them to introduce them at the Stowe School. Uh, Well, these are our friends, and they're coming out with this record. Although, it kind of makes more sense now that John Lennon would boo at that. Yeah, he would. Boo, boo. He didn't want to join us. Sorry, Ring. (laughs) The next act we want to mention, one Priscilla White. Priscilla White. The co-check girl at the Cavern. Yeah, who apparently had a really good set of pipes. Obviously, we know her better these days as Scylla Black. Yep, that's interesting, changing the name from white to black. Then that was apparently something Brian did. I, I kind of wonder why he did that. Scylla Black probably has a bit more of a ring to it, maybe. Maybe it's just a hunch that Brian had, and Brian's hunches more often than not turned out to be correct. I think it works better, personally. After an evening where apparently... She had been debating about whether going on stage. John Lennon is apparently one of the early ones who pulled her on stage. Were the Beatles doing a song? And then, then he just said, oh, come and join us and, and, and you sing. Okay. Thank you. Thanks very much. You've been a lovely audience. No, no, actually, you've been an audience. We've been lovely. Hey, John, give Silica. Come on. It's not a talent show, you know. Go on, John. Yeah, come on then, Cyril. You hum it, love, we'll play it. It's my favourite. The song, I mean, not boys. <laughs> but I like boys as well. <laughs> so, so, so for little Cyril here, opportunity knocks. So, you know, this was at the cavern, and this this was in 62. We don't know what song it was, do we? Summertime And the living is easy 
Priscilla was a big friend of Ringo's even before Ringo joined the Beatles when Ringo was still in Roy Storm. Okay. They hung out a bunch. There is an okay but not great three-part TV movie on Sulla's life. And basically the first two parts are all about this period in time. Well, you, you know, it's, it's a bit like books we used to get back in the day about any of the solo Beatles members. All those used to be, you know, all, all about the Beatles and then the final one or two chapters were their solo careers that lasted for the next 30 to 40 years. So it wouldn't be until the following year on the heels of She Loves You, I guess Brian was kind of looking for even more acts. Hello, John. Hello, John. Hey, John. it's Cyril. All right, John. Oh, bloody hell, Ma. You're not letting them have another go on you, are you? Sure, Rolf. <laughs> How are you getting on when you're new drummer then, John? Oh, I think he's terrific, don't you? He's all right. I did like Pete. Oh, no, we had to move on from Pete. He just didn't have as many rings as Ringo. <laughs> anyway, before you go picking holes and things, we've got a bit of good news for you. Oh, yeah, what's that? We got you an audition. An audition, you would? Brian Epstein. Brian Epstein. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that'd shut you up. He's very interested in you. He's looking to develop local talents. It's sort of out of you and this other girl, Beryl Marsden, who he's going to sign. And he wants to see you sing. On the 6th of September, 1963, Brian actually set up a showcase at the Majestic Ballroom for Scylla. And Brian was not all that impressed with it, apparently. She was doing that, but the backing group were doing it in a key that she wasn't used to singing it in or something. That is the way I believe it, that it went down that day. They did it in a key that was, I'm, I'm guessing, possibly too low for her to sing in, maybe? That would be a reasonable guess for me. They kind of went different ways, and then a little bit later, Brian would happen to catch her at the Blue Angel Club. Okay. She was doing, you know, a bit of torch, a bit of jazz there, and that caught Brian's ear. Yep. Scylla's response to that, you want to sign me? Well, who'd have me? She didn't see herself as a star at that point in time. That would really change, that would, yeah. As we've kind of mentioned, she was probably the British equivalent of anyone who could do the Backrack David songs. Her version of Alfie is just amazing. It's, it's a stunning piece of music. I, I love that her version of that song. But she she did say, though, that it was one of the hardest sessions that she ever had to do um, because he's quite a taskmaster, isn't he? Because she had... Is that the session where she had Bacharach actually there doing the session? and Bacharach and George Martin, and she made her keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And then once she kind of got to the point she couldn't do it anymore... Backrack turned to George Martin, and George Martin said, the magic is in take two or take three. And he went back and listened, yeah. and it's like, oh, yeah, you're right. Hi, Siller, I'm Bert Backrack. Hello, Bert. I heard you didn't like the title of my song. No, 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 I love it. Well, actually, I, I did say it sounds like the name of a dog. But then you did one to your mark instead of me, didn't you? Touche. <laughs> <laughs> What's it all about, Alfie? Is it just for the moment we live? What's it all about when 
started out of fear. Are we meant to take more than we give? One more. Bacharach would actually say that he was really impressed with Scylla as well. Maybe she wasn't quite Dionne Warwick, but she's had the ability to do those songs, which is not something every singer could do. She definitely had to push herself to get there. Let's go on to one more of the big acts, and then we'll talk about some of the smaller acts. Billy J. Now, Billy J. is the one who would take complete advantage of his relationship to Lennon McCartney. Absolutely. I mean, you know, they wrote three hits for him, didn't they, John and Paul? Well, first off, he was just Billy Kramer, and John Lennon said, you know, you should put a letter J. Make your initial a J. Doesn't stand for anything, but I think people will like that better. As I've said on top of most, he did it before Michael J. Fox. Yep. Some of the Lennon-McCartney songs that Billy J. did, on the 26th of April, 1963, Do You Want to Know a Secret and I'll Be On My Way. Kicked it off straight away there. He was doing a cover off of the Please Please Me album, and then it's an unreleased Lennon-McCartney song at that time. Yep. Wow. The song was only a little more than a month old, I guess, because at the beginning of the month, on the same day, April the 4th, is when they were at the Stowe School, the Beatles did their version of it on Side by Side. Yep. Listen to an earlier episode of Fab to hear the the Gab Four talking about the, the Stowe School. And then Billy J would also do Bad to Me and I Call Your Name later in the year in July. Also on the 26th. Wow. It would be almost a whole year before I Call Your Name came out on the uh, Long Tall Sally EP. And the Beatles actually recorded it by this point, and it was just held aside, or did they leave it until then to record it? I don't think they had recorded their version yet. Okay. It's a bit like the Beatles would write that song for, for the Rolling Stones, and then the Rolling Stones would have a hit with it, and then they'd get... Ringo to sing. Those recordings were in pretty quick succession. The Stones did theirs and then the Beatles did theirs like the same week. Okay. And Bad to Me, as we found out on Toppermost, would be knocked off from the number one spot by She Loves You. Wow. There you go. Those are the big ones. He would also do I'm in Love, which is not a great song. No. Every night I go to sleep. You can't always hit the top of most of the popper most. <laughs> Wrong podcast, sorry. Another song that the Beatles never bothered to record. You can understand why. That may have been another thing about Brian just handing out these Lennon-McCartney songs. It's like, okay, once you start getting to the lesser songs, they're not going to get to the top of the hit parade. No. They may get into the charts, but they're not going to go much higher than you know top 20 or so. In November, he'd be back again with I'll Keep You Satisfied. It's a little bit better than I'm In Love, but still not a great song. No, but it satisfied some people to get it in the charts. <laughs> I'll keep you satisfied. Wow. 
an interesting thing is the backing band that Billy had. That was a Brian Epstein deal. Billy was playing around with a group called, I believe, The Coasters, not those coasters. He was playing with a separate band, and when Brian signed Billy, yep. The Coasters didn't want to come along with him. Okay. So Brian went out and found another act, and hence Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas. Now, the Dakotas also insisted that they weren't just going to be Billy J.'s backing band. They had to get their own recording contract, which they did, which would lead to the Cruel Sea in 1963. Or the Cruel Surf in America. Billy J. Kramer and the Coasters. That just wouldn't have worked. Even if they'd gone with them, they would have needed a new name. I think Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas sounds good. They would do lots and lots and lots of Lennon McCarty songs. We, we we talked about Scylla. Her entry in that was uh, Love of the Loved, which is the other one that Beachwood really wanted to get the publishing on. The Beatles, they'd done it at the DAC audition, and they'd done it for a while. Uh, I think that was one of those John and Paul imitating Elvis and Buddy Holly a bit more than they would in later days. Not a bad song, it's just no. one which didn't quite fit in with them. So, on to some of the acts which were a little bit less happy with Brian. The Scaffold was signed with Brian for a time. Yep, a great little band. Paul's brother, Mike, with the poet Roger McGough and the comedian actor John Gorman, I believe. Yep. Yeah, and of course they would later join up with Neil Ennis in Grimm's. Yep, they would. Uh, whether he did it just kind of as a favor to Paul or whether he genuinely liked The Scaffold, Brian didn't quite know what to make of their singles. Lily the Pink to me is like a drinking song that people would drink to sing while they're in, in, a, in an English pub, for instance. Their early stuff is really more on the weird side than... Good Bat Nightman or, or Two Days Monday. I can see how Brian would be confused by that. I mean, that stuff is more of a an extension of uh, Roger's um, poetry, really, I, I think, because I've heard a lot of his poetry that's got that sort of almost surreal edge to it that's a bit out there. When they were to leave Brian and they were to sign with Noel Gay, they did go a little bit more pop. Of course, that's when Paul really started to get involved more with his brother's music. Okay, yeah. Thank you very much, or as you say, Lily the Pink. If Paul didn't co-write them, his ideas were percolating in there, I would say. Shout out where I mentioned about the Queen herself and the royal family being fans of the song thank you very much because the queen mother used to sing to the queen every now and again she'd go thank you very much for being your majesty as a bit of a joke a great story and of course in get back we see heather and paul singing lily the pink having a lovely time with that i, I wouldn't be surprised if john would have liked that song as well it would battle with tay jude and it would turn out to be the christmas song of 1968 oh Interesting. It would top the Beatles as far as being the, the number one at Christmas for 1968. So who else? The Moody Blues. A lot of people don't realize that basically the entire Denny Lane era of the Moody's were with Brian Epstein. Yep. I didn't realize this until we looked into it, actually. I'll be honest. I mean, I, I love the Moody Blues. They're a favorite band of mine, but I never knew 
that they were signed to Brian. The first time I ever really knew this fact was uh, in Frida Kelly's Good Old Frida. She mentions that they were on the bill together and that she was trying to get into the Beatles dressing room to deliver them some mail and some... Actually, I think she was trying to deliver them their checks. Okay. But their dressing room was crowded and, and she couldn't get in, so she just went and had a couple drinks with the Moody's down the hall. Well, as, as you would. <laughs> well, and so then when she finally got in to the Beatles dressing room, Brian fired her. It's like, what Ooh. were you doing? Why were you doing that with these other bands? You should be paying attention to the Beatles. It's like, but I couldn't get in, Brian. He later unfired her, but still. Wow. That was the first time I realized that the Moody's were part of the NEM stable. I mean, you see it mentioned, but... Not quite as often as you would think. Maybe because at this point in the time, the Moody's were really just another act that Brian had. As you say, once they left Brian, well, and once Denny Lane would leave the Moody's, they would become, to a great extent, the origins of prog rock. There's a really good documentary all about it that you can get on DVD about the history of the Moody Blues, which is still available if you want to know more. Ah, did they talk about Brian in there very much, or...? Do they even bring it up? Surprisingly, no. There's nothing mentioned about that, though, which is why it was new to me this time as well, because it's not mentioned in that documentary at all, which I'm surprised about. I mean, it's mentioned that they toured with the Beatles and they played the same gigs as them, but that's as much as they go, really. It's just kind of almost a forgotten piece of Brian Epstein and Nem's history. Now, the Beatles have several links to prog rockers, the Moody Blues. Brian Epstein became their manager in the fall of 1965. Unfortunately, their popularity was on the decline after having a UK number one with their cover of Bessie Banks' Go Now earlier in the year. Shortly after signing up with Brian, they supported the Beatles on what would be the Mop Tops' final UK tour. Going from a band you kind of know to a band I'll bet you don't know, Brian had an act called The Chance, or as they were originally known, The Shades that he had signed. And they came about to Brian Epstein, surprise, surprise, through the Beatles. Very different. I heard that Little Richard, uh, which is another one of my idols, black guy, and as far as I'm concerned, it was a rocker, rock and roll black guy. Put his foot up on the piano, be playing, but get it, get it, get it, get it. Good golly, Miss Molly, you know. I went to see him at the tower, and then after that, ended up in the dressing room. I found myself in a corner with a couple of other guys, you know. And this guy went, oh, all right, then, uh, what are you doing here, like? And I, I said, um, I'll come to see little Richard, he's great in here, and stuff like that. And I went, what are you doing here? So said, oh, we've been on. Discovered that, like, it's John Lennon and Paul McCartney I'm talking to. They said, well, don't you play anything? And I went, no, but I've got a group. I've got a group. And they went, you've got a group? And I said, yeah. He said, well, what do you play? I went, well, we don't play anything, we just sing. I went, how many is in your group? Said, uh, five of us. Paul said, um, look, come down to Cavern on Wednesday, Wednesday afternoon, and uh, we'll have a listen to you if you want to bring your group down. We went, walked downtown. We didn't know who the Beatles were. About five, five black guys all of a sudden appeared in at the cavern, you know? <laughs> and as soon as we got in there, 
Duke, 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 Duke of Earl. Duke, Duke, Duke of Earl. Duke, Duke, Duke of Earl. Duke, Duke. And the Beatles were like, whoa. Bob Waller runs up and says, I've just been on the phone to Brian. Brian cannot come over, but don't speak to anybody and don't sign any papers with anybody and he'll see you tonight. And, and John says, well, might as well do some numbers with us as well, you know. They had gotten to know John and Paul a little bit and, and they were invited down to the cavern. Now, according to them, they were not allowed into the cavern as five black guys. You know, racism in the States was a big thing. And while we certainly know there was some of that, was it quite so bad in England at the time? I wasn't around then, but I didn't think it was to that sort of level. I was surprised to read that they, they couldn't get into the cavern because of colour. I, I just was really surprised to hear that. So the quote from them is, five black guys standing outside the cavern would have looked suspicious. So we had to wait until they finished and everyone was coming out. Then we could come in and see them. But then uh, doesn't one of them say that one of the good things was that then when they walked in, Paul immediately clocked them and, and, and shouted out, Hey guys, you know, yeah, come on down. You can understand the Beatles, all of them being interested in this band because it's right down their alley because they love black music, basically. The Drifters and the Coasters and the Four Tops were very much the acts that the Beatles loved. At the same time, a very different type of group and a different type of music for, for Brian. Paul called them down. The audience had mostly left, so it was the cleaning crew, and, and they got up there and they started playing Duke of Earl. I'm surprised that we don't know much more about them, really, because, yeah, unless Brian just didn't know what to do with them. While this was going on, Bob Wooler was so impressed. He said, i got to get Brian to come and see this. Okay. So, as you know, the cavern is just a short run, a block or two from Nems. And so he, he actually ran down to Nems to go get Brian, but Brian was unavailable at the time. Okay. So they arranged for them to be on stage at the cavern that evening, and Brian would come down and see them that evening. But then there was a bit of a problem because um, apparently Brian didn't understand that they were a vocal group and didn't have any musicians to back them up. Even though the Beatles were there, he didn't really want them to be backing them up. But they still ended up doing so. Yeah, exactly. John and Paul handled the introductions, and they did four songs. Duke of Earl again, A Thousand Stars, Sixteen Candles, and Come Go With Me, a song, as we have discussed in the past, very big in Beatles history. After that little show in the cavern, they went over to the Blue Angel and Paul played the piano for them. So Brian came down and Brian signed the band up right then and there, hey. which of course didn't mean anything because the band were all under 21 at the time. Right. Okay. But Brian apparently did honor the contract and he got them a deal with a record label. Okay. What became of that then? Did they go anywhere? Well, they, it didn't actually go anywhere, but something we haven't gotten to on Toppermost, but we will pretty soon here, December the 7th, 1963, they would do a jukebox jury special from Liverpool. And the first song on the show was I Could Write a Book by the Chance. Wow. If they add me, I do write a book 
Liverpool group called The Chance on that one. I could write a book. John Lennon. Is it? I write a book, Mark, won't I? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fabulous. No, it's the uh, second record of him. It's the best of gear, you know. It's it. That's, that's the sound, boy. Let's see if you let Paul in and say, Paul. Yeah, I, we, I think it's great, too. Uh, this, you know, we were talking to The Chance the other night, and we said to him, uh, you know, what's your new record like? said it's powerful laugh <laughs> lovely so it's powerful thank lovely you ring us down i think it's great you know much better than the first one <laughs> and i'll buy it folks you will not even george harrison's looking rather moody about that george oh uh, yeah it's great yeah, yeah you know definitely it's a hit if it gets enough plugs and everything all right well let's vote that record remembering what you said if it gets enough plugs hit or a miss for the chance and i could write a book Hey, pull him down now. I heard out about that, all four. A hit for that one. Well, they're very generous. Perhaps it was because it was a Liverpool group, but it was a good record, and we'll see. Obviously, Brian had gotten them this record deal, and they had recorded this thing, and they were buddies with the chance. They didn't necessarily say that, but they did plug the record. John, it's gear. Fabulous. Fab. It's it. Yep, no favoritism there with John, though. None, none at all. Then Paul kind of lets the cat out of the bag. Well, I talked to the Chance recently about this disc. They said it's powerful, and it is. Good old Paul. <laughs> Ringo, mirroring what the Stowboys said uh, about for me to you, I'll buy it. <laughs> <laughs> Punchline Ringo. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, then George ends up their review with, it's great, enough plugs, and they've got a hit. And they all four rated it a hit. It got up, smack bang up the charts into the top ten then, didn't it? Sadly, no. Oh. They would have a couple more singles. They would shuffle through a couple of different record labels. Montana, Page One, Decca, and RCA. And they would just never manage to hit the charts. So, you know, there's an instance where having the Brian Epstein name didn't really help them all that much. No. And it's a shame because it is a good record. It's a little bit old-fashioned, but you can find it on YouTube. You know, listen to some of the Chance stuff. It's like, what interests me is the relationship, not only the relationship between the, the Chance or the Shades and the Beatles, but the relationship between them, the Beatles, Bob Wooler, and Brian Epstein. You know, kind of that whole afternoon and that they had enough pull Bob Wooler had enough pull to actually get Brian down there to see them. And then they would convince Brian. I mean, obviously, Brian had to have been at least somewhat impressed with their skills, but to get them signed. Not just the recording side with the records, but booking them with tours where they were touring, supporting, you know, Alan Shapiro, Bobby Rydell, The Searchers, and these things. I mean, that's, you know, you, you would have thought that that would have done something for them as well. Well, and, I mean, as we were talking about with the big three, Brian got them a stint in Hamburg. Apparently a pretty cushy stint where they only had to do, like, two sets a night. Wow. 
and that's two sets of 20 minutes, which is, oh, that's a piece of cake. It's like... Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's a little bit harder for a vocal group, I would say. Going to one of the acts which is only remembered because he recorded uh, uh, Tip of My Tongue, Tommy Quickly. <laughs> he was not a good singer. He tried. There's a story about George Martin having to record and re-record and re-record his vocal, and he was still never particularly happy with it. Mm. Oh, dear. You know, even... Paul McCartney couldn't do anything with this song because we got a demo of McCartney singing it and it's like, oh, there's a reason why they didn't want to even try and do anything with it. No. I kind of wonder whether Brian just wasn't paying attention or, you know, what was happening that he was bringing, I won't say inferior, but certainly not top-notch acts into NEMS there for a while in the mid-60s. I think this goes back to what we were saying at the beginning where perhaps Brian was spreading himself a bit too thin and having too big a list of of acts to manage. I mean, it's pretty damning even what George Martin said about it. The standard of people he brought in deteriorated. When he got to the stage of people like Tommy Quickly and Michael Haslam, we were going fairly well downhill. Brian took on too many. He wasn't very careful about what he did, thinking the formula would work every time, and it didn't. Well, I mean, it didn't help that they were giving him subpar Lennon-McCartney material, which, granted, was still better than a lot of stuff, even stuff that was on the charts, but... I mean, it sounds awful to say it. If they've not got the talent there to be able to push these songs and to sing them, then there's a problem there as well. Who was this guy and why did Brian decide to bring him in? Or was it kind of a case like the chance somebody pointed him at Brian and Brian caught him on a good day? Oh, sure, we can do something with this. You know, George being the way that he was as a producer, George Martin, he might have pushed, you know, for trying, oh, let's try it this way, this way or this way to try and accommodate the person's voice and work out what fitted them. But it's, it's like no matter what they did, it just wasn't working. There's enough acts that we haven't talked about that we, we might do a part two somewhere along the way here. I mean, we were worried that we wouldn't have enough to talk about, we're, but we're not even halfway through the list of acts we had. No, we're not. I do want to close out with The Circle. You know, they were a really good group. They really were. I mean, they weren't originally called The Circle either. But that's a name that they were given by John Lennon. Spelled C-Y-R-K-L-E. So their original name was The Rondells, and I'm wondering if... It was suggested that they change the name because the Rondells, to me, sounds like a girl vocal group. It also sounds a little bit like one of those doo-wop groups. The other thing it kind of reminds me of name-wise is the Standells. Oh, yes. Yep. So, I never thought of those, yeah. And we all agreed we needed a new name. And so everybody's thinking, well, what could a name be? What could a name be? Things kind of floating around. And in the studio, in the early part of this period, one day in the studio, Brian, who was in town, and he, he did pay attention to us when he was in town. He always invited us, and we got to hang with him a bit. He came up to me and, oh, Don, look at this. I'm going to pretend to do an English accent. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Oh, Don, look at this. And he was very gentlemanly, by mm. the way. Good, very lovely man. He hands me his business card. Oh, Don, take a look at this. 
and I'm looking at this business card in front of me, and I see it says Brian Epstein on it. He says, oh, no, no, turn it over. I turn the card over, and there's some scribbling, handwritten scribbling on the back of the card, and I'm trying to read it. It's a little not clear, and I see cur, sir, uh, I'm sorry, Brian, what am I seeing here? Oh, Don, this is your new name. And uh, as you see, it's the interesting spelling. It's the circle and the spelling, C-Y-R-K-L-E. And it was John that came up with it. And we all thought, you know, I, I asked the boys when I was back in, in uh, England. Uh, the boys is what they always referred to the Beatles, <laughs> the boys. I asked the boys, hey, we have a new American group. And, um, you know, what, anybody have an idea for a name? And it was John that uh, came up with the name, and as you know, John's interesting mind, the funny spelling. Yeah. And so, um, so it is so cool to tell people that we were actually named by John that, Lennon. That, that is wonderful yeah. honor mm -hmm. to have that. By that time, I guess certainly the Beatles had told Brian that they weren't going to be on the road anymore. So I mean, you know, maybe. He was paying a little bit more attention to some of these acts he was bringing into NEMS. My question there is, so the circle was friends with Paul Simon. Paul Simon wrote Red Rubber Ball. Why didn't yeah. Brian bring Paul Simon into the NEMS stable? And I don't have an answer for you. I just, you know, it's just a question. Why didn't Brian see if he could get Paul to write some more songs for the circle? It's an unknown question. I have no answers to this, but The Circle is a great band. They were in with a really good songwriter in Paul Simon. And Red Rubber Ball is, is a tremendous track. It is, yeah. But they themselves would become, you know, two of them would become really good songwriters themselves anyway from the group. For sure. We're just about out of time, but one other thing I want to mention, one of the acts that Brian refused to sign to NIMS was... Roy Storm and the Hurricanes, but he did still want to do something for him. So he produced their single. So he produced their single, but he didn't sign them. Apparently yeah. Rory had asked him and, and Brian kind of hemmed and hawed and he never actually signed them. Unless he produced them as a favor to Ringo. It's never been confirmed, but Ringo might have been at that session. Quite possible. Yeah, it could be Ringo guest drumming, maybe. I don't think he's drumming, but he may be playing tambourine or something. Maybe. There's at least a decent shot he was there. Brian didn't sign them. I think Brian may have helped to get them their record deal, and they recorded uh, a version of the song America. Not Paul Simon's America, but the Broadway. From, I want to live in America. That one. I like to be in America. They do a decent version, but there's nothing special about it. Brian did not have great skills as a record producer. Hence why George Martin did the produ production. I think maybe you're right. Maybe it was just sort of done as a favor to Ringo. Um, so. do, do you want something more positive? Well, positive-ish? Sure, let's, let's end, with, end something, with something more positive. Okay. One of the positive things is that Brian still, you know, he did great work for Scylla, carried on doing so. And one of the last things that he did as a manager was he actually arranged for Scylla to, uh, for television, she get her own television series. 
in the late 60s that was organised by Brian. It was one of the last things that he did. And from there, that's where her later career came from, where most people in the UK know her from, which is a big television star. Her husband was also a big part of that, as I remember. Now, uh, I have been doing some thinking. Um, Silla's recording career, we'll start to peter out. Maybe this year, maybe next. Nothing lasts much longer than that in this industry. And uh, uh, the trick is to start the next career before that happens. What next career? Can I get anybody a drink? Oh, thanks. What do you mean, next career? I've been getting a lot of offers for you to do television shows. Well, they like how natural and unaffected you are in front of the camera. I'm a singer, Brian. She's only interested in doing telly shows to help sell her records. What does she want to be on telly for? No, I really think you should look into doing something on TV. It's, it's a perfect fit for you. No, I'm sorry, Brian. We're not interested. Well, when Brian passed away, her husband Bobby became her manager. As I remember from the story, there seemed to be some push and pull between Bobby and Brian. Okay. As we have noted, these stories do tend to get exaggerated, and people misremember things. They do. That's where she would be well-known to people would be from that, because she'd eventually uh, be hosting the show uh, Blind Date, for instance, which is based on the US show The Dating Game. And, and she worked well for a show that we, did, that we had called Surprise, Surprise, which was like where she'd surprise members of the public in uh, in some ways, including one of the great things that she did on that show was she'd reunite family members that had lost contact with each other over the years because, of course, you know, back then we didn't have Zoom. Oh, that's that's lovely. And, and of course, I mean, she maintained a recording career throughout the 70s and both George and Ringo would help her out quite a lot. Yep. And she, well, she'd remained friends with all four of them. For, with all four of them, know. indeed, yes. She also had the cheek to ask them, uh, can I have photograph? Oh. You know, you, you heard that story. I have heard that story. That they were all together on a boat and, and George and Ringo were off, off in the corner writing photograph and, and still, oh, I really like that song. Can I have it? No, we're, no, we're going to use I'm, that one ourselves, Scylla. I'm sorry, Scylla. I wonder if she ever tried to cover it on one of her television shows. She must have. I think she actually recorded a version of as well. I might have to look that up, you know, and see if I can find it. Q Ed uh, putting in that version. Scylla did indeed cover Photograph. You can find it on YouTube, and it is on her album, her Greatest Hits album. That's good. Greatest Hits and New Songs Ooh. from 2003. Wow. So anyway, so you know, there you go. We do still have just a boatload of Brian Epstein acts, but we kind of wanted to get into the topic. Yeah, I think it's a good topic to go into because, like we said, you know, people will just think of the main – acts that we've 
we started with, but it's amazing how big a group of acts that he had. Entrepreneur is certainly a very descriptive term for Brian. Granted, he had the Beatles, and that certainly helped. And he had this huge pool of talent in Liverpool to draw from, and that certainly helped. But he knew a good song, he knew a hit song, and he knew how to present his bands. I mean, it makes you wonder because, I mean, he had a... Uh, who, who was the band that he got from Manchester that we've already mentioned? So you've got bands like that, but, you know, he didn't sort of see bands like the Hollies and other groups that were around at the time, which is surprising that he didn't go that way. You take that just four or five years later into the future, can you imagine Brian as A&R at Apple? I mean, not that Peter Asher did a bad job, but if that is the role that had Brian lived, they would have found for him at Apple. He would have just been tremendous at that. Absolutely. Was that what they were looking into anyway when Brian when Brian? Well, I think passed? they were looking for a role. I don't think it ever got to the point that they had actually decided on anything. I think they were thinking about a number of different things. Just as easily, Brian could have made the Apple Boutique a success. Oh, yeah, because that would have yeah. been right down his alley because Brian was really good with clothing and knew a thing or two about clothes and fashion. No offense to Pete Shotton, but the Apple thing might have worked with Brian there working with the Beatles behind the scenes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You leave the studio and you leave the music stuff to the Beatles and you let Brian do sort of all the behind the scenes stuff. You let him and his organization deal with what Apple was just horrible at the business of bringing in money, t observing where the money went, and then making sure people got paid. You know, if they had Brian's organizational skills at Apple, it might have worked. Taking that another way, you know, uh, Brian's history with, uh, with theater and acting, you know, that would have helped with the, the Apple films, perhaps. The Savile Theater, uh, Apple could have been a force in the whole theater scene in London. Definitely. Definitely. So, I mean, with Brian, yeah. Sadly, we didn't get for that to happen, but I'm not going to go down that road because we've, we've already brought us up to a happier point once, and we'll, we'll leave it with Scylla and her tremendous career, which was at least in part due to Brian. Absolutely. All right. So we will be back next week when, well, we're talking about something else. Hopefully we'll have some kind of announcement on something by then. If not the red and blue, McCartney Archive. That's what I want to hear. That's what I want as well. I want the next McCartney Archive release. All right. So I don't know if it'll be you, Martin, but it'll be somebody. And like I say, look forward to Lonnie and I talking McCartney Live sometime soon here. Roll a dice and you'll find out who it is. <laughs> All right. Talk to you soon. Take care. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we can be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California.
Can I quote from another part of the book? You say, though I employ the sort of people who can make wise and honourable decisions, I'm loath to give them the power to do so. Now, why do you find yourself unable to delegate this kind of power? I don't know. I've always found this in all sorts of businesses in which I've been connected, that uh, I am not good at delegating. I've had to delegate a good deal of responsibility now because of um, the growth of the number of acts which we handle and so on, but uh, I don't find this easy. How far are your artists governed by your sense of good taste? I mean by that, how much do your views influence them? I think, to a certain extent, both um, in their private life and in their performance? Also to a certain extent, mm -hmm. yes. Um, it's difficult to say this because it depends on the artist's concern and it depends how much they bring of themselves or they wish me to bring of myself. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again. <laughs>